The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my absolute honor to have as our guest, Lee Adcock. Lee is the Executive Director for Women, Food, and Agriculture Network, based in Ames, but she especially is interested in women all over the country who are making a difference in the sustainable agricultural movement. Welcome, Lee. Thanks, Melinda. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. You know, we met for the first time in person a few months ago, but I wanted to ask you some questions that we didn't get to, and that is, how did you get involved in this work? Well, that's a great question, and as I look back, it seems very natural to me, but I certainly would never have said as a young woman that this is what I would end up doing. So um, I grew up on a small farm in northwest Iowa, a conventional grain farm, corn, soybeans, and a few beef cattle, and I still co-own that farm with my mother. My father passed away about six years ago, but she's still living on the farm. She's 75. It's still farmed conventionally, and we've had some conversations about that, but she has a tenant that she really likes, and she's not right now ready to rock that boat. So it's kind of an interesting tension that we have between this work that I do and the kind of farming that my farm engages in. But I went to school for communications and journalism and worked at various media outlets for many years, television, radio, magazines, um, newspapers. But then about eight years ago, got involved after my kids were older. I had two boys who are now 14 and 18, but when they were little, I stayed home with them. And as I was looking back into the workforce, I saw an opening at the Iowa Farmers Union, which I'm sure you're familiar with the Farmers Union. Mm -hmm. It's an organization nationally that supports small and mid-sized farmers. So I worked for them for about five years as their office manager slash executive director. And then this position with Women, Food, and Agriculture Network came up when our founder, Denise O'Brien, decided that after 11 years at the helm, it was time for her to step aside and do some other things. So I had been on the board of that group and loved it, and so um, ended up stepping into this position. Well, perfect fit for you. And I want to ask you something about sustainable, especially because you have this background in communication. How do you define sustainable agriculture? You know, there are so many definitions out there floating around in the blogosphere and in books, and they're all good. I think my favorite one has to do with the notion that we're trying to use our resources to produce food in such a way that we're not jeopardizing the ability of future generations to do the same. So we need to be able to use our soil and water wisely in such a way that we can feed ourselves but leave the soil and water, if not in as good a condition, better condition than how we found them. That's one of the nicest definitions I've heard, really. It just sums up what all of us hope to leave our children is a future, a healthy future. Exactly. Well, Well, it has to be. I mean, we have no choice, really. You know, you and I have talked about this, but the the current path is not sustainable in any form, economically, you know, morally, environmentally, mm -hmm. health-wise. So 
the change is coming. It's just a question of whether we manage it wisely and go into it with our eyes wide open or sort of let it happen to us. Mm -hmm. What makes you think that women have a unique role to play in this? Well, you know, at the risk of sounding sexist, and I always have to preface this by saying that, um, that I do think women and men tend to look at the economics of agriculture and food production differently. And I'm not saying that there aren't men out there who totally get it, who completely understand how to be good stewards of the soil, air, and water. But it tends to happen maybe more readily with women because we often are the nurturers. And that doesn't mean that we're all mothers. We're all not mothers, obviously. But we tend to think about things in systems perspectives. We tend to think about family units, community units, um, not in quite such a linear fashion, perhaps, as males do tend to do. Mm-hmm. So overall, I would say that the sustainable agriculture and healthy foods movement in the United States and really worldwide has been driven by women, both as producers and consumers and advocates. So that's just my experience. There's no value judgment attached particularly, but um, you know, the organization that I work for was begun by women for women because they were the ones that were pioneering sustainable agriculture in this very conventional ag state of Iowa. Mm-hmm. And they realized they needed a way to connect with one another and support one another, both with information, but probably more importantly, with moral support and emotional support. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, the latest survey done by USDA on the numbers of farmers that are working in agriculture in the United States the very latest statistics I saw showed that women farmers were actually increasing. And women in agriculture really do have a unique set of challenges. Do you want to talk about those? I do, and I'm glad you brought up those statistics. That is actually information from the USDA National Ag Statistics Service. They do an ag census every five years. And while census data are notoriously faulty in a variety of ways, they do tend to indicate some trends. And that trend you mentioned is certainly one that really popped out at a lot of people between the 2002 and 2007 censuses, and that's the most recent one. Um, Women farmers have increased in number by 30% over that five-year period, which is significant. Now, some of that has to do with the way we're counting now, but not all of it. I mean, there really is a significant increase in the number of women farmers, and the type of farms that women tend to own and operate are small-scale diversified ag enterprises. They're not huge grain farms that are selling onto the commodity market. So there are more of these women. They're probably overall making less income from the farm than their male counterparts. They're farming a different way, but they're creating a significant change in the way food is produced in their communities because they're typically raising food. They're not raising feed, which is what a lot of our grain farms are doing. So the reason I believe that they tend to need support is because, first of all, they're often geographically isolated because they're farming out in rural areas, and then they're culturally isolated because they're um, farming in a different way than their neighbors typically are, particularly here in the Midwest. You know, there are more small-scale diversified ag enterprises on both coasts. But because of that and because of the fact that women tend to process stress by communicating with one another, they're much more apt to do that perhaps than some men these networks are very important for them, and they need to be able to communicate with one another, if not in person, then at least in a virtual way, which is where our network comes in. That's a really interesting comment that you just made about the way in which women communicate. And I always think that it's one of the reasons why women live longer than men, although I have no quantitative data or qualitative data to to support that. It's just a gut feeling that because we are able to 
or where we seem to be hardwired to communicate with each other and express our stress and fears, that somehow um, having each other as a support network is incredibly important to keeping us healthy and whole. Well, and I actually have seen some statistics on that, Melinda, so your gut feeling I think is absolutely right. And we we are hardwired for that. That's a great way to put it. I think that women just instinctively reach out for conversation and just to connect with one another and relax together. And when you're farming particularly, you know, you really need that because you may not see another person until market day all week. Right. Let me ask you something about women in particular on the farm. I had been to the Ohio Ecological Food and Farming Association meeting a couple of years ago and went to a breakout session that was specific to women farmers. And some of the stories that the women shared in that room were things that I hadn't thought about before. For example, a woman goes to her extension office and asks for help, and she's discounted. You know, well, she can't be a real farmer because she's a woman. Have you seen that? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, and you know, it's, I, I hate to dwell on the negatives because we've certainly made a lot of progress, and a lot of that progress has been made because of leadership from women like Denise O'Brien and and you know the women that we all met, you women that we met at the Cultivate 2012 Summit. But there remains a lot of work to be done, particularly with the county, state, and federal agency staff. And many of those folks are really, really helpful. I mean, I've had wonderful experiences with a lot of county extension folks and with FSA people, any USDA employee. However, there are still some folks out there who are very conventional in their mindset. They haven't encountered women farmers before. So it seems, you know, kind of shady or risky or not serious to them. And another community that a lot of our women members have had a little bit of challenge working with is the financing community. I mean, FSA has one financial source, but bankers, community banks, yeah, um, women will go in with a, a half-inch printout of their business plan. It's all well thought out. They've researched the market. They're going to raise grass-fed beef, for example. Can't get financing because they aren't taken seriously. They're told, come back with your brother. So right. That's really egregious to me, and, and I would think that by 2011, we wouldn't be seeing so much of that anymore, but it unfortunately still does happen. Right. Well, I want to get to the 2012 summit that you mentioned a little bit later, but I want to talk about another challenge that never crossed my mind because I'm not a farmer, but it had to do with equipment. So when a woman wanted to buy a tractor, they weren't fit for her size body. And so physiologically, we have different needs in the garden or in, on the farm, I should say. Yes. Well, in both. You're right. Both. In both cases. And and the fact that women are typically doing small-scale diversified ag means that, you know, they're right on the cusp, a lot of them, between mechanized and hand labor. So they may be doing a lot of hand labor, stoop labor, working with spades and shovels and hand weeding. And when that's the case, those tools also are built for male bodies often. So there's a, a phenomenal cool new company called Green Hair and Tools. If people just go to greenhairandtools.com, they'll see this new company that's been started by two women in Pennsylvania who realized that women were hurting themselves using these tools built for men. So they've created an entire line of tools for women's bodies that they can use in, in gardens, small and large. But in terms of, you know, small tractors and, you know, power equipment, some women are doing farms on a scale that requires that kind of equipment. And and this is true for men as well. There just really isn't a lot of small-scale equipment out there anymore. So right. a lot of them are, are buying, I don't know, just sometimes the farmers, as they always have been, are innovative and create something. They invent it. Sometimes they are lucky enough to find an old, small 
tractor like old farmalls. I know a lot of folks are out looking for those used old ones and restoring those. So it's yeah, it's a significant challenge because you know that all of our equipment out there for conventional ag now is 32 rows and enormous. So yes, and it's one of the challenges that I hadn't thought of before about okay, we we recognize that we need to make a transition. We're dealing with climate change. We're dealing with public health issues. We're dealing with environmental catastrophe. And so we're second-guessing now. We're, we're thinking twice about some of the decisions that we made agriculturally, and yet it seems like it's really hard to get out of debt. And what are we going to do with these large machines once we realize, gosh, I think I made a mistake? What are the outs? Well, you know, that's a great question, and, and it's not an easy one to answer. I mean, in my opinion, in my lifetime, I mean, I'm 51, so it's not going to be forever longer, but I don't believe that we will see the end of commodity and or conventional ag for any time soon in the near future. People will continue to farm large grain farms, mm-hmm. but the portion of our food that we are able to produce on the community level, the local, county, and state level, I believe will continue to increase, and the demand is already there. There are people, women and men both, raising that food, but we need many, many more of them out there on the land. So it may not be so much a question of what do we do when we switch over completely from conventional to more sustainable practices. Um, In terms of the equipment, it may be more, you know, the types of soil and water conservation that we're able to practice on that land that's farmed in a large scale, and how do we support the introduction of more small-scale farmers on the land and perhaps allow some of the larger farmers to maybe experiment a little bit on 40 acres or 20 acres or 10 acres with something more sustainable. That's a good transitional strategy. So a lot of things sort of need to happen at the same time, and and they are, but it's a big ship to turn, so it's going to take a while. Yes, and I believe those were Kathleen Merrigan's words about the big ship. Oh, yeah, it's very true. At the farming concert a couple of years ago in St. Louis, I remember her using that visual, and it was so appropriate because you can just imagine this big ship going along, and, boy, turning that thing around is, is tremendously difficult. It is. I want to just let our listeners know that we are speaking with Lee Adcock, and she is the Executive Director for Women, Food, and Agriculture Network, and she was also involved in a terrific summit that I attended. It was called the Wingspread Summit, and it uh, titled Plate to Politics, and it was a partnership with the Midwestern Organic and Sustainable Education Service, the White House Project, and Women, Food, and Agriculture. And the attempt was to create a collaboration to try to get more women leaders involved in sustainable agriculture movements and to try to turn that big ship around that we were just speaking about. Okay, Lee, so at the Cultivate 2012, you you raised an excellent question in a small group. You said, if women controlled more, and I hate to use the word control, but if women had greater influence in policy, agriculture policy, health policy, what would be different? And what were the responses that you got from your different breakout groups? Oh, that's a really good question. I got great responses. I mean, people were a little stunned at first, which indicates something to me, you know, which is that women have been excluded from this conversation on the policy level for so long that they can't really even answer the question when it's put to them. You know, it took Mm -hmm. a while. Yes. But then when the thoughts started to flow and they got to dreaming a little bit, we got some excellent answers. I mean, Basically, we all felt that the food and agriculture system would be a priority, first of all, and that the priority within that would be sustainability, that we would be focusing very closely on the direct links between 
the public health crisis that we're having now, and I use the word crisis very deliberately, mm-hmm. with obesity and diabetes on the rise and all of the attendant costs that will come with that, yes. and food, the way we produce it and the kind of food we're raising. Um, I mean, it's very clear, and it's been clear for a while, but there are such entrenched interests, you know, agribusiness interests, basically, in the industrial food system that we have now that that change has been difficult. But I believe that if more women were at the table in politics, you know, mm-hmm. we're 80% of the food dollar. That's what we control as women. More and more of us are the ones raising food, and yet tiny percentages of us at the table in policy, both at the corporate level and the, and the governmental level. So I just have to think that if more women were involved in policy from the local level all the way up to Congress and the White House, that we would be much more concerned about changing our food system so that everyone had access to healthy food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that really piggybacks on to an earlier statement in which we described women as being the primary nurturers, the primary people who are ready to pounce if some harm happens or is encroaching upon our young. You know, We're right there to protect that next generation in a very uh, visceral way, I think. Yes. I agree, and I also believe that, as I mentioned before, you don't have to be a mother necessarily That's to feel right. that. You have, I believe that women tend to have that very strong community feeling. If they're not caring for their own children, they're caring for other folks in their community or their you know, immediate or extended family. So we just tend to think in ways that promote the health of the entire community, not just even, even if we do have children. We're usually the ones you know, talking to other mothers about how the school lunch choices are so poor and things like that. Right, right. That's an excellent point. Thank you for clarifying that. One of the other issues that I want to talk about is the role of women that you see with your own organization with regard to the kinds of farms that women are taking over. So are we seeing women more with market gardens because we tend to see smaller, more diversified farms? Do we see women making connections with maybe making contracts with institutions, say schools? Do we see women or do we see women moving more into that ag in the middle or even conventional food production? Is there one that rises to the top? Well, definitely the small-scale diversified farming, which is the the market farming, is the one I would say most women who are entering farming are getting into it at that scale. However, I'm not certainly not going to claim that there aren't women entering farming at the middle and large-scale levels because there are, and there are established agribusiness organizations for those women out there already. So there certainly are women that are going back, you know, coming to college, getting degrees in ag, and going back home to farm with their families, you know, 22, 25-year-old women. Mm-hmm. And there are women who are inheriting farms in their 40s and 50s who are looking for tenants that can help them farm that land in the way that they'd like to see it farmed. Mm-hmm. So they're really all over the board. It's, it's really encouraging to me. You know, you bring up a very important point, and that is this transition of land ownership. And that piggybacks on your statement earlier about how bankers look at women who maybe want to try to get loans to purchase land. And we are really at a very crucial time right now where the average age of your average farmer is, what, 55, 57 years old. There's going to be this transition. And how much of that land is going to be able to go to these smaller, more diversified systems versus change hands to more of the corporate agriculture, uh, and that's probably dictated a lot by the price of the land. There is that, definitely. But, you know, a couple of things I'll mention that I think are are really exciting and encouraging here in Iowa, and hopefully they'll be spreading over the Midwest. Women Food and Ag Network has been working with women landowners for the last 12 years and doing a lot of 
surveys and meetings and trying to find out what it is that women who are inheriting land and, you know, coming into ownership of land are looking for. And the typical woman landowner that we meet with, the ones that come to our meetings, are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. They're inheriting their land from a spouse who has passed away because, as we know, women tend to outlive men. Right. And they have never participated in the day-to-day management of the farm in most cases. The husband did that. So when he passes away, the women have a window of opportunity in which they're interested in trying to pass the land on to a young farm family and find someone who's going to farm it in a very sustainable way, more sustainably perhaps than has been done in the past. They may not be happy with their current tenant, for example. So they're looking not only for information about good soil and water management, but they're looking for empowerment, encouragement to start having that conversation with their tenants. They're often reticent about that because they feel they don't know anything. And if they go into the county offices, they're discounted sometimes. They feel like they don't even know enough to ask a question. So this program is called Women Caring for the Land. People can find out more about it on our website. But we've actually piloted it here in Iowa and now have grants from the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service to spread that pilot out into six other upper Midwestern states. So we're working directly with the conservation partners in each state, and that includes the county folks, the state folks, and the federal folks, to identify these women, bring them together, and just try to bridge that gap. They're not getting the information. How can we get it to them? So they're women-only meetings. We spend a lot of time with the women talking about exactly what their farm is like, what their experience has been with conservation, and what they like to see happen. Mm. So those have been really exciting to go to. Very, I mean, women have said that it's changed their lives, which really indicates a lack me that we're trying to address. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that we've also got a, a partnership with Practical Farmers of Iowa here in the state, which is a basically a farmer organization. They have a list of about 300 beginning farmers here, everybody from, you know, 20-somethings on up into the career changers in their 50s, big, women and men both, who want to find access to land. So we are bringing them together with some of the women who have been to our conservation meetings who are looking for new tenants. And it's been really exciting. I mean, I think we've got a few matches already, which was never really our intention. It was more informative. We just wanted to let the landladies know that there were beginning farmers out there that would accede to their wishes on conservation farming. And the young people know that there or the beginning farmers know that there were landladies out there who were looking for someone like them. So I think initiatives like that are a really hopeful sign, and I hope that we can spread that kind of thing around the, the country. That is incredibly hopeful. But I do want to focus a little bit on challenges. And when we were at the, we were at our meeting at the Wingspread Summit, we spoke about three main areas of focus for our group, and it was health, food, and economy. And one of the issues that I brought up as being one of my concerns, of course, was health insurance or the lack thereof. And we're talking about women in particular now on the farm. Not only is farming a dangerous occupation, but women, because they are the child bearers need to be able to access care during pregnancy, for their children when they're young. And we've got the financial strain, not only of having land and working independently and probably making payments, but then we've got this health piece. Where do you see this going? How how can we get ourselves rise up against this challenge? You know, I would say that probably... You know, we just did a survey of our members, and I was expecting, we asked people to identify what the major challenges were for getting into agriculture, and Uh our sort of our myth always has been that it's been access to capital and access to land. And those did arrive on the list, 
but they were at numbers two and three. The top barrier that women identified to entering agriculture and continuing to farm was access to affordable health care. So it's the most significant obstacle for any small farmer, really, but women in particular, as you mentioned, great points about, you know, being the child bearers. So in terms of the solutions, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time talking about this with Steph Larson, who's the board chair of Women, Food, and Ag Network, and she also works in rural outreach for the Center for Rural Affairs in Lyons, Nebraska. Yes. Steph has spent years working on the health care issue. She did a lot of work during the universal health care, congressional debates, she basically is my guru, and she says, you know, there really isn't a good answer right now. I mean, there are a lot of pieces that need to come together. There are some possibilities. One is group co-op health care. You know, there are some organizations around the country that have looked into purchasing policies on behalf of farmers in groups. So that's one possibility, but it's it's a significant challenge, and, and I'm afraid I don't have a good answer. I'm, I'm not sure anyone does right now. I think it's something that we're going to have to put our heads together and figure out collectively, which is why I thought that the Wingspread Summit was so rewarding. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about some issues that are top on your list and also talk a little bit about Cultivate 2012 and moving forward. All right. Well, let me just give you a couple of things that are sort of, as I, as you say, top on my list. I mentioned our survey that we just did. The reason that we're surveying our members is because we would like to know if people feel Women, Food, and Agriculture Network should be doing more in the advocacy realm on the national level. We're a national organization. We have members all across the country, but we're based here in the Midwest, and most of our programming is done here. So we've been challenged um, a little bit as an organization on, you know, how much can we do on the national level but we realize there really is no other organization speaking on behalf of women in sustainable ag at the federal level. So we feel like we've been challenged by some of our members to take up that, that gauntlet, and we'd like to do that in a very deliberate and intentional way. We will never have the resources financially or you know, capacity-wise that the large agribusiness corporations have. But we do have passion and great people and a lot of intelligence about how we can use our limited resources in a very focused way. So... Our hope is that out of this uh, survey, which includes a lot of questions about what, are, what things are barriers to you, what things you know, do you want to see the network do, how can we help you with your work, that we'll be able to craft an advocacy strategy and a national media strategy that will um, dovetail with the work that we did at the Cultivate 2012 Summit. Mm-hmm. So that's our work that we really are focusing on for the next six to eight months. And that's a good segue into just a quickie overview of what happened at the Cultivate 2012 conference. We were able to come up with this idea for collaboration because Liz Johnson at the White House Project and Lisa Kiverest at Moses and I were lucky enough to work together on some things over the last year or so. And we just decided, you know, we would love to see what would happen if we could get 25 to 30 women leaders in sustainable ag from all over the country together in one room for a couple of days. What kinds of solutions could we brainstorm? So that's what we did. We never purported to have everybody in the room that certainly could have been there. My contention is that you could have put any 30 women that work in sustainable ag in that room and come up with wonderful solutions. Yes. But we did manage to come up with some some really exciting um, initiatives, I believe, that we're going to undertake between now and the 2012 elections. Um, people can take a look at those at platetopolitics.org and join in. We have a lot of ways that everybody around the country can get involved, and it really isn't going to work unless they do. Oh, Lee, what a delight to speak with you today. I am just so excited about the future, and I think women have a very critical role to play. 
I want to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Lee Adcock, and she is the executive director of the Women, Food, and Agriculture Network. We'll make sure to have that website online, www.wfan.org. And also, as you mentioned, the Plate to Politics site, we'll make sure we have a link to that as well. I want to thank our listeners for joining us with a friendly reminder that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Lee, thank you so much for being my guest. My pleasure, Melinda. Thanks for having me.